Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich. And this season, as you probably know, we're talking about system and application architecture. And today's guest is none other than Anna Sherman from Zillion. Hey, Anna Sherman, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. I don't normally greet people with their first and last name, but yours came yours came with a total package. It's great. So you're calling us from Chattanooga right now. I, I just got back from chat or got out of Chattanooga like three weeks ago. It's a really nice spot. We have a question way down the line to ask you about why there's so much tech going on in Chattanooga, but I'm just going to open up with that. Like, Tell us about Chattanooga and the tech ecosystem and what's going on down there and how you like it. Yeah. It's a great place for developers. You know, the gigabit internet, I think, draws everyone in. It's super fast. Like, I go and I, like, visit places now, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I am so spoiled with just, like, how seamless everything runs because I have a gig coming into my house for, like, super cheap, 60 bucks or something like that. It's stupid. It's real. (laughs) That, I think, draws people in because they're like, oh, I can come and, like, this is just, like, not even in, in the equation of having to worry about But then you get here and there's a lot of stuff to do outdoors, which, you know, that's some people like that. Some people don't. But I love being able to just get into the river, go down a creek or go rock climbing. There's just so much stuff to do here. Tons of hikes. But yeah, I think, you know, low cost of living. I think it just is like a really nice place to live with a tech scene. It's hard, I think, to find that without going to like a large city. But there's, you know, the people are nice. The developer community here is really like cooperative rather than competitive, I think. Everyone wants to see everyone else do really well. And so people offer up help and it's just kind of like a really good vibe. And I think too, like Bruce Tate came and he's been helpful in getting more elixirists in Chattanooga. Brett Wise, who I work with now at Zillion, he like recruited Bruce to come. And I think the river kind of sold it for him there. You know, it's just, I think he got a nice place on it. It's really, it's really pretty. Yeah. He does have a nice place on it. I visited him while I was down there and it's like really nice. And the river is super cool. And I just got, the reason I like made that face was because Eric sent me a back channel and said they have 10 gig internet, which yeah, that's insane. Okay. Like, cause I've got a gig for like 120, which is pretty expensive, but yeah. And and I'm like, oh, gig internet, that's super fast, but 10 gig internet, what? That's yeah, you you need different networking cards to get that. You gotta like router, all that's like you gotta get some some beefy stuff for that. But yeah, so like I mean the gig really it draws you in and then you just get here and this the town's just kind of nice and people are nice and yeah, I don't know. I think Elixir is getting bigger here too because we have like Gig City Elixir that happens which has been nice the last couple of years. And eventually nerves come, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was supposed to happen this year. But, you know, RIP everything because of COVID. RIP everything. <laughs> that's just where I'm at with it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, I just invested in a rental property down there. So I'm going to be yeah. in, in Chattanooga more <laughs> often. Hmm? Well, next time you're in town, hit me up. We'll take you out. Go I will. Ahead or something i would love that i love the uh we're getting way too into this but i love that train station place 
Oh yeah, yeah, the Choo Choo. Yeah, that's a cool yeah. place. Yeah, yeah like they've, they've done some really nice stuff there. They've brought you know, there's, I think they moved a coin op in there too. So there's like an arcade, but then actually, I haven't really been over there since COVID happened. Oh. I don't know what survived. I feel like that's like the state of the world right now. So yeah. I think the guitar museum went away though. That was a little sad. Oh, like permanently? I don't. I think so. Oh. Yeah. But anyway, of silence for the guitar museum. R.I.P. Okay, no. So uh, really glad to talk about Chattanooga. We're also going to ask you, you know, give you time, especially at the end of the show, as much time as you need to talk about Zillion and what you're doing over there. But first, we want to just learn about you and who you are. And, you know, we like to start right from the top. Like, how did you get into programming originally? Were you formally trained? Did you come to programming some other via some other path? So I was a math nerd all my life. I just knew that I wanted to do something mathy. And so I just kind of took off, very driven person. I went to Berry College down in Rome, Georgia, and was, you know, getting my math degree. But when I was there, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out how do I get a job with math? How does this work? And the only two things, I was not very imaginative. The only two things I could think of was like, I could just stay in academia and do the whole research thing. Or maybe I could get a minor in anthropology and be a statistician. I don't know. I was coming up with some weird stuff. I think one of the things that I've saw a lot was you can go be an actuarial scientist. and <laughs> Yeah, that's like a whole yeah other ballgame for sure. I had decided, I was like, you know, I'll do the anthropology minor thing. People are interesting. Cultures are interesting. But my junior year of college, it's required that you take a intro to computer science class for your math degree. And then I was like, Oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I actually want to do. Like takes all the logic and problem solving and turns it into like a fun game with tangible output. It just was, I just had a blast. So like from then on, I was, I was hooked. I dropped my anthropology minor with one class left (laughs) and I picked up like an object oriented programming class in Java. So I had two college courses under my belt when I when I graduated because it was like so late. I was like, I'll finish my math degree. And then my parents, after I graduated, sat me down in a Chili's like you do. <laughs> and, um, and we're like, so what, what's your five-year plan? And so it's like, okay, I'm going to teach myself programming and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to, I'm going to, I was like really weirdly specific. I was like, I'm going to get a job with a small company so that like I can really learn from people. And then after two years, I'm going to leave them and I'm going to go to San Francisco and work for Google. And so this was the plan. (laughs) And, you know, they were a little skeptical, mostly because I didn't actually know anyone else who was a software engineer. It was just the only concept I had was from college. And I just knew that I loved to do this thing, but I didn't know anyone. So I am a very organized, very driven person. And so I was like, okay, I've got to figure out how to learn this. So I like went and found all the resources I could online. And I literally made myself basically a little boot camp. And I didn't realize what I was doing, but I was like, okay, I want to get through all of this material. So I just like broke it up and I was like, okay, I estimated this is going to take this much time. And I like, it's like, okay, Monday through Friday, I got up and worked 9am to 5pm just learning. Caveat here, I moved in with some family friends who took very good care of me (laughs) while I was doing this. And I worked at a math tutoring center place in the evenings to, you know, make a little bit so I could survive. 
but yeah, I cranked through all of this material online. This was like seven years ago. So it, it was pretty good. Definitely did not fully prepare me for my first job. But I got through the material I had planned in like two months. And I just set out and applied for jobs and basically sold myself as like an investment. I was like, look, I know I don't know everything. I'm not telling you I know anything. I just know that I know how to learn and I love to do this. And if you guys invest in me, like I'll definitely invest in your company and be super, super there for you guys. So. And it took you two months to get a job that way? Yeah, I know. It's a little bit crazy. It's a little crazy. I, I don't know how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I just, I really pushed on it and somehow made it, made it work. Yeah. Amazing. That's amazing. I love it. It was a blast for sure. I want to ask, well, I guess I'll just comment on that. So actually, so I went to a boot camp in like almost 10 years ago now and it took me three months coming out of the boot camp to get a job. And I thought yeah. that was pretty good. I was like, oh, three months. That's pretty good. But two yeah. months, like, wow, man, you just, you just did it. And you taught yourself, which is like even more impressive. I think it was just my naivete just didn't even just didn't let me hold back on anything. I was like, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be great. And I just, you know, pushed forward on it. So beginner's mind. It's very valuable. Yeah. And now you're over it. So what was that first gig though that you got? So that was a company called Sovi. It was a local company in Chattanooga and they did machine translation, which was pretty cool. It was super neat. They also did a bunch of other random stuff. Like I think we hosted GodTube or something. I don't know. It was <laughs> There was a lot of other random things. There was like a video editing component to things at one point. Like they came back and they were like, we need video editors because we just got this order in for like 350 videos. And like, Anna, can you like learn how to do this? Sure, fine. But then they realized they were paying me way too much to be just putting dubs on videos. So they switched me back over. <laughs> it was kind of a trippy company. Their main goal was to translate the Bible into like a whole bunch of different languages. So there was that part going on. But then they were like selling the language translation to companies to help solve problems with translations in between different parts of their company. So like Chrysler Fiat or whatever, there was like Italian going to English and then English going to Spanish for their like Mexican plants and stuff like that. So stuff would get lost in translation. So we create smarter translations for them. Were they translating us? Because there are many translations of the Bible in English, right? So were they translating a specific version or did they translate all of them so that their corpus was a little bit more diverse? Or? Yeah, so I can't remember exactly if they had a specific version. So it was like they were working with, oh man, what is that company? It starts with W. Oh, I don't know. There's like a group of people that their whole mission is to like translate the Bible. So they were working with that organization. They were also not starting from the English versions because they had, we already had so many translated versions. So like for the different languages in Chinese or whatever, they, they would like start with, traditional and then like translate to the modern one. And mm. there's like thousands of languages in India. And so they would start at like a different, not the English version, just to like get a closer translation to what's going on in the next language. I don't know. It was kind of, it's been so long since I've done any of that. Stuff. No <laughs> like, worries. No worries. Like, I can't remember any of these real specifics, but it was just, yeah translating, you know, we load in a bunch of corpus, like you're saying, and 
I was on the parsing part of that, which was really fun. Got really good at like regex. That was my life because I was building like a segmenter, not just an English segmenter, but like all these different languages. Figuring that out was was pretty fun. If we keep that in this, you're going to get people like knocking on your door to help you with regex. Oh, no. Yes. Then take it out. (laughs) Just kidding. No, it's probably a good problem to have. Everybody wants a, a resident regex expert. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your like current gig. What is Zillion? What are you doing over there? How'd you get the job? Yeah, so I think the the line is we provide one click insurance to help people protect the things they love, specifically jewelry. So yeah, we're trying to you know leverage data where we can to help create a better experience for people buying jewelry and insuring it. Right now, I'm the team lead and a developer there, which means I get to help architect and implement various systems that we have. And Elixir is a big part of our backend infrastructure at Zillion, and all of our engineers write Elixir, at least a little bit, and, and most write a ton of it. So, Cool. How big is the team over there? I am actually not allowed to disclose that information. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about... like. We'd love to hear more about the kind of work you're doing over there. And we'd also especially love to hear about like open source work that you get to work on, maybe supported by Zillion or just in your free time. So, yeah. So currently I saw that question and I'm just not working on any open source stuff right now. Me neither. (laughs) This is my open source. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that it's, it's one of those things where it's like, Oh man, I always want to be doing that. But then when I do have, time where I'm like feeling like coding, I end up futzing on weird side apps that I have. I like to paint Bob Ross things, murals or whatever. And so I like have an app that it like keeps track of my art supplies because every time I go to the store, I'm like, I don't remember what I have. So I have like a little app that helps me with that. And then I play a lot of Magic the Gathering with my husband. And so I've built several... (laughs) Magic apps. One is like an Alexa skill that you can ask, what's the ruling on this card? So like while we're playing, we can shout out Alexa to be like, tell us what the ruling on this card is. So we don't sit there and like argue about it. But yeah. So, and then I also, I also built a small Elixir app for cataloging all of my magic cards. So I could like figure out how to build decks. Now, do you also include the price API somewhere to Watch the number go up or down. There's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like a, is it Scryfall or something like that? Has like a really good API for like all the metadata you want to know about a magic card in an API. Super clean, super easy. Yeah. You can also download, they have like daily JSON dumps of way bigger than you would expect files. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't want to use the API. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I, I messed around with that at a hackathon once. Yeah. So no open source stuff, just random mini projects. And currently all of our stuff at Zillion is proprietary. It's, we don't have any open source stuff at the moment. Cool, cool. So at Zillion, how are you thinking about for yourself and for your team, given that you're a lead, how do you think about professional development and growth? Yeah, I mean, it's super important. We have like a pro dev budget that allows our engineers to go in go to conferences and learn things, which is always a great way to learn and develop your your skills and stuff. Pairing helps, I think, with professional development that like ironing, sharpen, sharpening iron is great. Professional development wise, 
COVID has kind of thrown a wrench in all that stuff. So it's like the last thing I did was code beam out in San Francisco, like right before everything shut down. And but normally Chattanooga has a pretty like bustling tech scene. Chadev for a while there, once a week we were putting on like a lunch and learn someone in the community or even outside of the community we'd bring in to, you know, come in and talk on a topic. So that was always a great way for me to, you know, learn new things. And then we do, you know, within Zillion, our own lunch and learn. So like if there's like a new topic or a new pattern or something that's come out and that someone's learned about or they've implemented something new, we'll have once a week or, or so a lunch and learn where we kind of discuss it. Someone goes over it. So we're constantly sharing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Eric and I actually found you, I think, through that Code Beam talk. Do you want to maybe give the audience like a elevator pitch for that talk? Oh, yeah, sure. It's on change and how to handle change, which I think everyone can use these days. You know, we've been hit with a lot of change in our lives and being able to accept and not tense up so much when we are presented with change in our personal lives will be help like is helpful. But, you know, within within your development teams, it's crucial. And elevator pitch, I guess, would be Elixir is great because it basically allows you to it's functional everything's a function and it's composable. And so, you, you know, you break everything down when change does happen. It's not like, oh gosh, I have to go change this giant thing. Everything's a small function, you know, does it takes care of its own business. And so you can go straight to where, where the issue is and, and make changes or if you have to refactor, it's just much easier in a functional language because you're not dealing with giant OOP tightly nested systems, you know? Yeah. I remember there was a specific moment where I realized that, oh, this is just a function. I can call it directly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great. We'll include a link to that talk in the show notes, so make sure you go check that out. All right, so this season is architect architect and system architecture. So we've been asking everyone roughly the same set of few questions. So to start that out, what does architecture mean to you? Yeah, this is this is a, a tricky one because it can be such a broad thing. But I mean, it is it's definitely about like the layout of the code, but it's it's about like the patterns that you choose that help provide consistency and lower the cognitive overhead for your developers. Like for me, that's what I'm about. If I can offload that and not have to think about something, I will. So I think architecture plays a big part in that when your developers aren't having to worry about those things, they're free to like create cleaner and better code. I think. Can you maybe give an example of like what I I think in Elixir, there's probably an infinite number of these, but at the same time, it might be hard to pull an example just out of thin air. But when you're trying to create patterns for people to use and also build on top of, how do you make them like really clear and explicit? And if you have an example, that'd be great to hear too. Yeah. A lot of the times, so we've got like a style guide that I've been working on (laughs) for a little bit. But yeah, so, you know, we'll do, if I, if I put in a pattern or we're like, oh, we like, I think this is a, as a known pattern, maybe where you kind of have your mocks, you have your, your service that is doing, you know, some business logic, or you have a service that maybe calls out to the outside world and you're wanting to test around that you create like kind of a mock module and then in your config, you kind of pull that one in instead of the real one that goes and makes the call and then, you, you know, handle the responses. So like that pattern, we talked about it in a lunch and learn. And then we, 
document it within the code to be like, okay, this module, this mock module handles mock calls out to said service. So there's comments in our code and then information in the style guide, and then we disseminate it through a lunch and learn. Part of the problem that I have, and I guess this is part of the reason why I'm asking is because it's a problem that I have personally, which is like a lot of times I find myself not exactly knowing how to get someone up to speed, especially on on patterns that are product project specific. And so kind of always curious how to make them like either very obvious or document them in such a way that they are apparent to people. I like the idea of sort of going over them in a lunch and learn. That's great for people that are already on the, that are on the team. The problem I have is like when new people join and that weren't there for the lunch learn. Yeah. But that's super helpful. What what is the difference in your view between architecture and design? Like what what's the difference between those two words and what do they mean? Yeah, I think design informs architecture. We design systems and flows and like the architectural plan is like the thing that actually supports and implements the designs. And do you have any opinions on domain-driven design? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. It keeps everyone in the company aligned on what you're building. And again, it's all about lowering that cognitive overhead, right? So like if a developer needs to implement code, like it's easier to think about when it's in terms of the domain and what we're building. It makes it easier to have conversations around things than where they fit into the system. So for us, it's pretty natural. We have like the controller service repo pattern, and then our domain logic like ends up in the services. So it just kind of flows from there. All right. I don't think I've heard of the controller service repo pattern. Do you, can you go a little bit into that? Yeah. So you, you kind of basically, you know, you keep your controller super thin and then your services does all of the domain logic for whatever you're doing. So like your controller just handles like the input output, like it's gets a request in and then it packages up and gives you the, the output. And then the service goes and calls this into the repo to get whatever data you need, do the transformations, calculations, whatever, and then returns that to the controller and that just presents it out. So all, of, yeah, all of the real meaty stuff ends up in the services. And I guess domain wise, like the services are named after things in the domain. Hmm. When you mentioned earlier that you were working on a style guide, I was, I mean, for the first thing that came to mind was, oh, I wonder if they'll ever open source that. And then she'd have a good open source project to reference. Yeah. But the other thing that sort of came to mind is like, is the style guide very focused on idioms and sort of the, the very tactical a- aspects of programming in Elixir? Or are you documenting some of this as a controller service repo? Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty, the way I've set it up, it is pretty specific to like what we're doing. You know, I reference out to, again, other people say things better than I do <laughs> or, you know, have, have thought through Elixir specific things and I just reference to those. So I'm like, we're doing this thing. Here's here's an article on that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I literally break it down of like, okay, if we're going to go implement a story that, you know, creates a, a resource and what does that need? Context functions and the service and the controller and all of that. So like breaking it all the way down. And then what that looks like, what our expectations are, because we have kind of specific, every context module that we have has specific one functions that we want in each of them as a base. It gets all the way into that of like, okay, you're going to go add this thing. You need to go add these specific things kind of. And then any kind of weird situation that comes up, we have like someone will slack me like add this to the style guide. 
this thing came up. We need to remember this. Like it's important. Add it so we know this for the future kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We have something similar. Speaking of side projects, I guess I ended up making one. We, we, someone was making a joke about Evernote and I was like, oh, we can call it Smart Note. So now we have a similar thing where it's like if a, a question keeps popping up, we write it down in that thing. So. It's a, a good thing for companies to have, I think. I think so too. I mean, having that shared knowledge, you know, helps everyone be on the same page for sure. Reduce the siloing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're about to start a new feature and you've got all the requirements and all that. Is there anything you do before you start typing out into a file? Yeah, I do. I'm a flisticaler. <laughs> so I make a lot of flisticles is what we call them. They're physical lists. And yes, <laughs> y'all are like, what? <laughs> yeah, so we have, you know, pre-coding, we've got our tracker tool that has the stories that have the AC in it. So typically we'll like go through that with a, you know, a product owner and just make sure that we know exactly what they want built. And then we'll do an estimation a la like rock, paper, scissor style and get that set expectations there a little bit. And then what I do is I try to think through everything I need to do for that story. And I will write out like a little to do checklist on it. And if there's something that's like in there, that's like, Ooh, I know I need to do this thing. I don't know how to do it yet. I'm sure there's gonna be other things. I'll just be like, okay, star, come back, come back to this or like spend time figuring this thing out. But after I figured it out now do this thing. And I find it like, it really helps because especially working at home now, like there's so many random little things that can happen that like might pull you away and you'd be like, where was I when I come back? And it just, I automatically can be like, oh yeah, I was working on this thing and I still have this stuff to do kind of thing. And even when it's, especially when it's something really hard or something unknown, you kind of go into that little like developer rabbit trail hole thing where it's okay, I need to figure this thing out. And then you come up for air and you're like, where am I? What day is it? okay, that's done. We figured that out, but what's next? And so, yeah, I just always refer back to that list. And again, it's that like removing the cognitive load of, okay, did I actually do everything I need to do for the story? So like, I, I make sure it lines up with like our acceptance criteria and stuff like that to make sure I catch anything that they're like, we need to make sure it does this specific thing. So I make that flisticle before I start. And then I go, and then after I get it like working, I make another flisticle. Is this word just killing you guys? I just want to know how you spelled it. Because I, I like <laughs> typed it out to Justice like, maybe this is right. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I spelled it like five different ways. Maybe P-H-Y-L-I-S-T-I-C-A-L. <laughs> like flisticles. Fl- flisticles. <laughs> Like uh, like the the world's best Greek philosopher, yes. Philistocles. <laughs> so good. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna come back and they're like a thousand years from now. They're gonna dig up this audio and they're gonna like have a hard time translating it. And they're gonna think that Philistocles is a real <laughs> was a real was a real thing. So, <laughs> but no, I, that's actually also how I do things. Yeah. Like Eric and I never worked in the same office, but we used to have this like a closet full of legal pads. And recently we went to get all of our stuff. And when I went to get it, I just had like an entire filing cabinet full of like used legal pads yeah. of just to-do lists, yeah. basically. Can you throw them away? Because I can't. Like I keep trying to bring myself to throw them away. I'm like, none of this stuff matters anymore. No. It's gone. It's no. over. But I can't throw it away for some reason. 
I it's literally like journalism have a, where you have yeah. to you have to always have the physical copy if you wrote it down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I literally have a three bedroom house and one of my bedrooms is just filled with notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. I just, <laughs> and it's just it's useless now, but I'm like, it's not even like it's cool math that I was doing. And then it's just like add user button or something like that. Like it's just, <laughs> just like like it's nothing groundbreaking, but you just can't let them go. Let's talk a little bit more about architecture, microservices, microliths, monoliths. What does what kind of like just broadly speaking architecture are you using over at Zillion? So the Elixir side, we do both, but we prefer them like the monolith unless we need to break it out. So testing is a big driver for us. Like we're big TDD people, and since at least TDD or at least having coverage, you know, we've got our coverage tool that like helps make sure. And since testing within an app is much easier than like testing and it's way more reliable than testing like across microservice boundaries, kind of prefer the monolith. And we even like, we have occasionally made microservices within the monolith to make separation easy if it becomes necessary. So like within some of our stuff, we're actually making HTTP calls back to our app just because we know eventually we want to like move it out, but it's not ready. And, you know, we're a startup kind of thing. And so move fast and mostly monolith. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Umbrella apps. Do you have any experience with those? You know, I don't really have any experience with umbrella apps. Okay. I don't think I give a real good opinion on them. I, we do have, we do technically have an umbrella app at Zillion, but it's just kind of like a fun little nerves project that, got built and it's like nerd gong. It's like strands of lights that like light up depending on like different things that come into our Slack channels. So like if someone buys jewelry insurance, we get like a pretty little light or like whatever. So like it's, you know, or someone gets a, an SMS from our system and like lights up. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> we work in the best industry where people make stuff like that. Like, come on. Yeah, that's, that is so cool. All right. No, I, I really like that. I'm glad you shared yeah. that. You want to credit or like hat tip to whoever whoever put that together? Oh, Craig Lines all the way. Craig Lines. Okay, cool. Well, good on you, Craig. That's a really clever idea. Yeah. I've got a note here about getting over the fear of failure and not worrying about like making mistakes or messing up. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I think especially in our industry, I fail every single day. I don't know about this, but I do like... I do not like immediately write the perfect line of code every time. It's it's a lot of trial and error and error is important and it's a part of the process. And and so for me, I think it's important for people, especially trying to get into our industry to not get bogged down in like not everything not working right away. And that that's just like perfectly natural in the programming setting. And I don't really ever see anything super as a failure, it's just like a learning point in our lives. A lot of the times I meet juniors or people are trying to do the thing that I did, right? So like I I set up this ridiculous schedule and and I was able to stick to it, but that doesn't work for everyone. Not everyone is insane like I am. People who try it and it doesn't work for them, they can sometimes get discouraged. But for me, I'm just like, no, just pick a different time. Try a different time. You'll figure it out. I'm one of those people that thinks anyone can program. I don't, I don't know if that's controversial or not because, you know, we all like to be special and like have our thing, like we're smart and we're intelligent. We can build really cool things. And that's totally true. But I think, I think everyone has the capacity to learn what we do and yeah. become good at it. It's people learn in different ways. And so 
but I think at the core of everything, it's just being, being comfortable with failure and like learning from it and moving forward is, is a thing that every developer needs. Yeah. If it's controversial, it really shouldn't be. I mean, we do hour of code every year and it's like, you'll go into a school setting with like second or third graders and they're like little kids. And sometimes they don't even speak English. And it's like, at least one of them will be absolutely on a tear, like just destroying this thing, like better than I would do. And even the kids who are like not as motivated are able to do some of it. So, and like realistically, how many like literal primitives are there in programming at like a very high level? There's not that much to learn. It's like, what? loops functions variables what else if the conditionals like yeah. the, i don't know yeah. I, like there's got to be less than half a dozen like things yeah very cool eric do you want to close out with a fun question yeah so i was watching your the start of your talk and at the very last intro bullet point was you were into board games so i was curious if your board game has changed since your favorite board game has changed since what march is when you gave that yeah, you know, it still hasn't like a handful of stars. It's just so good. It's like this really intense galactic strategy game, but it's like also deck building at the same time, which like scratches that like Magic the Gathering itch that I have. It's pretty great. I don't have you guys ever played A Few Acres of Snow? Yeah. Okay. So it's made by the si- same guy. So some of those mechanics are there. But yeah, it's it's fun and, and I like that it can be played two player. And it's like still just as good as if you had like four people. So like it's it's hard to find those kinds of games too. Cause like we have a house and we always have tons of people in and out of it. So like sometimes we want four, sometimes it's just me and my husband. So it's we just got back from a trip from Teleco, Tennessee, and we brought it with us and we played a couple games. And I was just like, yeah, this is definitely my favorite game. <laughs> That's really cool. And this has been a really interesting conversation. I want to give you some time to make any plugs or asks for the audience, shameless self-promotion where people can find you, whatever you want, the time's yours. Yeah, I guess my Twitter is cavewoman90 and my Instagram is annasherman108016. And my plug for Zillion is we're always looking for good talent. So if you're interested in looking for a fun and challenging environment with lots of elixir, you can drop a line to either Craig or I at Anna at myzillion.com or Craig at myzillion.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Anna Sherman. This has been an episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Anna Sherman, and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I'm Justice Even. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We love to work on all that stuff. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player you can also find us on instagram and twitter and facebook so add us on all of those you can find me personally at justice Epen and eric at eric ostrich and join us again next week on elixir wizards for more on system and application architecture 